0: What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast. I'm your host, Felicia, and I'm a lady talking about sex. And this week, we have a very special guest with us for Trans Day of Remembrance that just passed. We have Addison. Addison, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Absolutely. Hi, everybody. My name is Addison Rose Vincent, and I use they, them pronouns, and I proudly serve as the executive director at the Nonbinary and Intersex Recognition Project.
0: Amazing. So do you want to maybe elaborate a little bit more on your work and maybe why you yourself have come into this field?
1: For sure. So I am a non-binary person. For me, that means that I don't identify as a man or woman. I'm something in between, outside, beyond that binary of gender. Um, And for me, in the work that I do, um, I'm proud to be leading uh, this organization that has historically been pushing for third gender options on state IDs and birth certificates. And right now, we're in the process of moving and seeing uh, what we can do next in order to empower and support non-binary and intersex people across the country. And intersex is a term that we use for folks who do not fall into the traditional sex binary of male or female anatomy.
0: Amazing. And so, for folks who have never been exposed to the term non binary, what does that entail? (laughs) I I know that's a big question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't speak for every non binary person out there, but uh, for me, I think that uh, it's a complex and beautiful experience. Um, I didn't grow up knowing or understanding what non binary or even transgender was. Um, So, for me as a non binary person, my experience has been a lot of forging my own path and coming up with my own definitions, my own terms in order to self-identify and being able to build a community with so many other people who understand, who are going through the same thing and we're kind of figuring it out as we go. But it, it, you know, it's great to know too that we do have a source of history uh, when it comes to being non-binary people. I think that folks don't always realize, but we weren't taught this in schools, but before colonization here in indigenous America and all around the world in the Samoan islands and in India and in lots of different places all around the world, third gender identities and expressions have existed for thousands of years. We're nothing new, but unfortunately we're in a time where we're trying to reclaim our identities, reclaim our history, and find who we are.
0: Absolutely. And I really love that you recognize um, indigenous communities and indigenous folks, because something that I'm really excited to eventually get to talk about on this podcast are two-spirited people, um, which is something that I don't think a lot of people understand. And <clears throat> we uh, We hear a lot about what the great Christopher Columbus did for everyone, and he really just he ruined a lot of things. So I really like that you got to bring it back to pre-colonization because I think that's that was kind of the pivotal moment where all of these binaries were kind of set in stone and um, bestowed upon different communities. Um, exactly,
1: exactly. I was going to say too that we've got Thanksgiving, you know, coming up to or around this time. And, you know, I think that it's just so important for people to really recognize um, indigenous communities and everything that's happened and how our, our, our culture, our uh, society has been created. I do apologize. My, my dog is barking in the background. I don't know if you can hear.
0: <laughs> that's not a problem. We're all um, at home, so it happens.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my point is just that uh, as we're reflecting on all the uh, ways that our um, society has been created and, and the systems of violence that have been created, too, in order to get where we are today, Uh, This does also include uh, these systems of transphobia and enforcing this gender binary. And I think that in the work that we do in order to heal ourselves and heal our country, um, this also does include really addressing uh, the violence of a gender binary, the violence that even comes with what people think are small things with gender reveal parties, but are ways that we set up people for um in a way quote unquote failure or uh gender nonconformity and and ways that people have to um uh that, that they cannot adhere to this binary and then are seen as other we need to really identify how we play roles in this too in colonization in racism and also the gender binary.
0: No absolutely and I'm really excited that you got to uh bring up gender reveal parties, because uh, I have a few opinions about that and, and what's been going on in that regard. But I'm really excited <laughs> to kind of talk about that. Um, as we kind of evolve in the conversation, especially in regards to Trans Remembrance Day, and how all of these social norms really, really have affected gender nonconforming individuals. But I kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about you and your experience um, being a non-binary individual. How did that quote-unquote, coming out process come for you? Because I know that this isn't something that was taught in schools at all. Like, what was your first exposure to non-binary individuals? How did you how did you experience that? What was that all like for you?
1: This is a great question. Um, well, uh, I was born in Canada and raised in Michigan. Um, so after being born um, in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, if anyone's familiar with the area, um, I'm from I, Etobicoke. <laughs> oh, okay. Very cool. Very cool.
0: <laughs> Amazing. I know exactly where you're talking about.
1: <laughs> so after I was born in Windsor, I ended up, uh, my family, we moved over to Detroit and we lived in a suburb called Troy, Michigan. And there, that's where I really grew up. And in that area, um, I... <laughs> well, around like the age of four, I was already expressing gender nonconformity. I was dressing in my mom's clothing and her heels. And she used to be like that, you know, that Avon lady, but she used to sell lots of different things. She would do Avon. She did Mary Kay, which is like cosmetics. Uh, she did Lady Remington, with it, which is jewelry. Uh, she did lots of different things. Um, and I was always her little helper. And I was always so curious about feminine things and beauty products and uh, ways to express yourself in a really glamorous and and fabulous way. Um, So I would dress up as a little kid and at that time too, my hero, my role model was Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. This idea of being able to uh, save the day and look fabulous in a pair of ruby slippers, uh, that was my thing. (laughs) So I would dress around the house and be who I was and express myself in a really non-conforming feminine way. And after a while, my parents thought it was cute at first, but after a while, they got a little bit worried, worried about how other kids were treating me at school, um, how I was uh, responding to that bullying. And they felt that it was better to push me more into a masculine box and get me more involved in sports and, and hanging around with other boys and all these different things. Um, So I, I, at an early age, understood what it meant to not adhere to the binary. I also learned from an early age what shame was. And I really, really um, internalized uh, shame and feeling horribly about who I was and how I wanted to express myself. And I had also learned not to talk about it either. I didn't really have a lot of openly gay, non-binary, LGBTQ plus people around me. And I felt that if I did try to talk to anybody who wasn't openly LGBTQ, they wouldn't get it and that I would also just be seen as wrong or doing something bad. So. Growing up, I didn't really have a lot of representation, but in high school, I do remember uh, this one student who was a couple of years older than me, who was openly gender nonconforming and was unapologetic and unafraid with their presentation. And uh, at the time, I would probably call that person, I would, would probably use the terminology of trans or maybe non-binary. Um, and that person did eventually come out as a trans woman, but there's a complex story with that person's story. Um, but that was probably my first uh, in-person representation of someone who was is non-binary and it inspired me and scared me at the same time uh, because I, w- I loved how this person was expressing themselves and how unapologetic they were but it scared me because I felt that if I tried to embrace it I wouldn't be maybe as supported or as welcomed or as empowered as this person was. So I ended up, you know, waiting until I actually moved away from Michigan and I moved to California at the age of 17 to come out and be, well, first in the the language that I had at the time was gay. So I came out as gay. I was able to then slowly be able to uh, look at gender identity and expression and eventually came out as trans and non-binary when I was uh, 21. It was back in 2013. And at that time, at my college in California, I was actually the only openly trans and non-binary person on campus. It excited me that I was uh, a trailblazer in a way, that I was the only one doing this, that, that there was so much work to be done, and I was willing and able to do that work of bringing more representation, bringing more opportunities for trans and non-binary people to campus in conservative Orange County, California. And at the same time, I felt so alone, too. I didn't have that community. I didn't have anyone else to share uh, this joy and these experiences with. But in the work of being so out and being so open with uh, my non-binary and queer identities, I was able to inspire other folks to eventually come out themselves too, or even attract other students uh, who were seeking colleges that could be affirming spaces, seeking them to come to Chapman University and to be a part of the community as well. So we grew as a trans and non binary population over time, and it was really special to see.
0: That's amazing. And I really admire the, the, I could never imagine what it would be like to be the first of anything. So just to be the first individual in like a systematically, you know, oppressive institution must have been terrifying. But I think that that's super amazing and like just incredible that you were able to do that and you were able to support others alongside that because that's, you know, another burden to carry. So I, I I just think that that's amazing and I hope you, you understand how helpful that probably was to like a younger version of yourself um, coming to university kind of paying it forward the way you know the person in your high school trailblazed for you now you're doing that for someone else which i think is incredible um
1: thank you i appreciate that
0: no problem but i did want to kind of ask too because you spoke a little bit about terminology and you know coming out to california you finally had a little bit more of a grasp and maybe some more educational resources on the difference between like identity and sexuality and like where you kind of wanted to fit within the spectrum of um gender identity how did your sexuality if you don't mind me asking play out during this process as well
1: (laughs) that's a great question when i when i first uh, you know, when I, as a teen, when I was first trying to figure out, uh, my identity, it was really limited to sexual orientation. Cause again, even though I had this one in-person representation of gender nonconformity, it, at the time to me, I was still trying to classify that based on sexual orientation, not gender identity. Cause gender identity to me was something that was so solid. You are what you are based on your birth and birth sex, but And so at the time, it was all really based around sexual orientation. So I first, when I was 18, came out as gay, and that was based on my attraction to men. And after realizing that gender identity could be something that was a bit more complex and realizing that I myself was transgender and non-binary, so for me, transgender means that I don't identify with the gender that I was assigned at birth. And non-binary, again, means that I don't identify with being either a man or a woman. I'm something in between and outside of that binary. That's just my definition. So after I realized that, too, I then had to look back on my sexual orientation. As a non-binary and trans person, do I still use the term gay? And am I only attracted to men? And so it started a, a long journey. And then also starting medical transitions so starting hormones and, um, you know, pursuing, uh, surgeries and stuff too. For me, that also in a way impacted my sexual orientation, my attractions as well. And so now I use the term queer queer for me is just a really vague term. That just means that I'm not straight. It allows a bit more fluidity too, for me and, uh, doesn't, feel like I'm being pigeonholed into one identity or one type of attraction. I find that from time to time, my attraction changes. It's a bit more fluid. Um, that what I thought that I was interested at first, I'm not interested maybe in at all now. And things, things are constantly changing. So queer as a term gives me a bit more flexibility.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I really kind of I think that the labels that you use, not that I think that people need to abide by labels, because I think that that just furthers this notion of otherness. Um, But I do really like the complexity within your identity and how a lot of people, I think, understand trans um, individuals as trans mask or trans femme and really nothing in between. But I think that that still pushes this binary that, you know, colonialism has kind of put within our society, especially within North American society, but it's pretty much everywhere. Um, So I really, really appreciate you kind of being so open about your identity um, in regards to also acknowledging that you can be trans and non-binary, and those two aren't mutually exclusive, um, which I think brings a lot of dimension to your own identity and probably makes you even more (laughs) fun than the average person because there's just so (laughs) much to it. Um, But I really wanted to kind of talk about Trans Remembrance Day and kind of what we're celebrating um, this week and in the coming weeks. And, you know, as people are getting educated and learning more about these communities, I think it's important to talk about the history um, and a lot of the systematic divisions and, you know, issues that were kind of happening and are still happening. Um, But maybe do you want to give people an, an idea of what is Trans Remembrance Day? Why do we celebrate it? What's the importance behind this week?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Trans Day of Remembrance is a day that follows Trans Awareness Week. So uh, for the entire week leading up to November 20th, uh, people are sharing their stories, being able to bring more education and awareness to what it means to be transgender and or non-binary. And Trans Day of Remembrance, again, on November 20th every year, was founded back in 1999 by Gwendolyn Ann Smith, who is a transgender woman herself. And she wanted to honor and memorialize the murder of a transgender woman named rita hester back in massachusetts and what started off as a web-based project something to just bring awareness uh around the passing of rita hester ended up evolving into this international day of action and so every year now on november 20th uh the names and every country around the world um, are collected in order to honor those who've passed away. Now it's been traditionally based on, uh, the names are based on those who are transgender and who have passed away from um, hate crimes and from uh, direct murder. Uh, but it's evolved over time too, to not only include just the names of those who've passed away from uh, violent death, but also those who've passed away from suicide or natural causes too. I think that this year in particular, um, for me, I'm I'm honoring some close friends here in Los Angeles who have passed away this year from a number of different causes, not necessarily from a hate crime or from um, at the hand of someone else, but from suicide, from um, substance abuse overdose um, and other causes too. One name that comes to mind that I really want to honor today, and and that we've been honoring since February when she passed. Um, her name is Camila, and she passed away from suicide. Um, and she was a beautiful soul, someone who was hilarious and just such a such a wonderful, wonderful person who was always there for people and. Was always bringing some sort of drama and flair to to the room. Um, <laughs> she used to on on Instagram. She used to do these uh, stories where she would joke around about being a news reporter, and she would be uh, reporting live from wherever she was, and come up with this really fun and creative story that had nothing to do with the truth and nothing to do with reality. But it was always, it was always a joke, and it was so fun. And she was someone that brought brought joy and light to everyone around her. And she will be missed and she, we will always remember her. And November 20th gives us that opportunity to, no, to remember her, to honor her and celebrate her, but to honor so many of the people who've passed away too. I also think about Monica Roberts. Monica Roberts is a uh, Black trans woman who recently passed away. And she was based in Texas, but she had this online internationally recognized uh, media platform called TransGriot and on that uh, she would share the stories of other trans and non-binary people. She would amplify our voices in our news and oftentimes when news sources, mainstream news sources, were misgendering us or ignoring our stories, our deaths, our celebrations, our joys, uh, she was writing about it. She was trying to amplify those stories and she will be a sorely missed um, key part of our community and, and an integral member in building transmedia awareness. So that's that's what I have to say.
0: No, <laughs> well, thank you so much for that and i'm I'm very sorry for your loss, especially you know the personal ones, but regardless, it's I, I really appreciated the dimension that you brought, because I think a lot of individuals understand that trans deaths, yes, there are a disproportionate amount of violence that happens to LGBTQ folk, but also trans folk in particular. And so I think a lot of people think that the causes of death are typically hate crimes, when in reality, a lot of the deaths are inflicted by society. Um, and when I say that, I mean, nobody just, you know, commits yes. suicide. It's not just a thing yeah. that happens, right? It's a product of obviously mental health issues, but also, you know, the way you grow up, the acceptance that is surrounding you, the support you have from your family. There's a lot of sociopolitical and economic elements that affect an individual and especially someone who is dealing with substance abuse. Okay, you have to think, why? Why are they dealing with substance abuse? What are they trying to cope with? Um, So I really appreciate that recognition alongside of that, because I think it's a very superficial way to say, while it does happen, trans individuals are disproportionately affected by hate crimes. Um, I do think that a lot of sociopolitical factors influence Deaths that could have been prevented. Um, absolutely,
1: yes, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that too. When you're talking about uh, suicidality, I think that you know sometimes I unfortunately hear from people that you know they say that suicidality is um, a choice, and to me, it's not a choice. It's more of a, a response to these systemic violences, right? These systems of violence that that push someone into that type of response. Um, and you're absolutely right when we talk about unemployment. Um, housing insecurity, food insecurity, uh, domestic violence rates and sexual violence rates, um, police brutality. These are all things that, you know, at a higher rate impact transgender non-binary people, but specifically Black transgender women. Um, We see so many Black transgender women who, you know, I've worked in different nonprofit um, organizations here in Los Angeles, and we just see it, it's, you could see it and you know it in the numbers too that trans people are less likely to be able to have jobs, less likely to be accepted into housing, uh, get apartments, get houses, or even into shelters too. There's so many shelters that will deny entrance to trans and non-binary people uh, for not being cisgender, for not maybe even passing as a man or a woman um, in terms of cisgender terms. It's it's so complicated. And I think that people really need to think about um, these systems of violence. Absolutely.
0: I, I completely agree. And I really liked what you just mentioned about being cis passing, because I feel like this is something that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. So would you feel comfortable maybe elaborating on what does it mean to be cis-passing and maybe some of the privileges that come with being cis-passing and also being trans?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, passing refers to the the, um, ability of blending. Um, And blending means that you maybe don't look transgender, but when people first see you, they think that you are a cisgender uh, man or woman. And cisgender refers to identifying with the gender that you were assigned at birth. Everyone is assumed to be cisgender in this world, and so unfortunately, um, there there becomes this uh, idea of what's normal versus not normal, normal versus other. And instead of using a term like normal versus being transgender or non-binary, uh, we use the term cisgender just to recognize that privilege. So for folks that do pass as cisgender, there, there is um, less likelihood of job discrimination, housing discrimination, of uh, more opportunities to be able to access opportunities and goals and to reach your dreams. But unfortunately for so many transgender and non-binary people who still do pass, as cisgender, there is still an incredible amount of anxiety, stress, and fear around whether or not they will be outed, around what the response or reaction will be of other people if they do find out that this person is transgender or non-binary. So although there may be um, some privilege that comes with the, the ability to pass, and uh, reason that, that being the reason why so many people do pursue hormones and medical transition and surgeries in order to pass... Um, there is still an incredible amount of fear and anxiety that trans people face. And so um, with that in mind, too, I think about the incredible, incredibly high rates of stress and anxiety that any transgender non-binary person faces whenever we're walking out in public, we're interacting with someone new, or we're in spaces that are new to us. Um, it's really, really important to be aware of that.
0: No, absolutely. And I also think that this is something to recognize that's super important um i was speaking to months ago when blm was kind of at its height i was i spoke to an OBGYN, a black OBGYN, who was talking to me about um like high levels of um i think there it was like cardiovascular issues in black women and how statistically black women are more pre quote-unquote, predisposition to cardiovascular issue, issues in their later life. Um, and she kind of pointed out that, well, if you look at the systems that are in place that potentially give Black women anxiety or the stresses that Black women are put under, um, no wonder they have cardiovascular issues. They're stressed out all the time. And I think that science kind of negates to recognize these social implications that heavily influence individuals health, whether it's physical or mental. So I do want to recognize that notion of anxiety, and that long standing anxiety, even if you're not predispositioned to any sort of mental health issues, having high levels of anxiety for long durations of your life. It's not healthy. <laughs> and it has long term implications that I think a lot of people don't Really want to recognize, or don't maybe don't have the critical thinking skills to acknowledge yet.
1: Yeah, I you know, I absolutely hear that, and I, I think too that when you were talking about stress and talking about, um, you know, even trauma and how that shows up into our physical bodies too over time, it makes me think about the ACEs study, uh, that was conducted at uh, Kaiser Permanente, um, uh, back in the early 2000s. And it looked at adverse childhood experiences, uh, meaning that when children ex- were um, exposed to traumatic situations too, how that impacts their physical health over a lifetime. And we saw that, that in that, that children who had higher levels of ACEs, higher uh, multiple levels of traumatic experiences as children were more likely to have higher rates of cancer, heart disease, lung issues, um, lots of different things going on. Um, and we also found too that in, in that, that um, folks were more likely to, to expose themselves to those same situations again, uh, because it's familiar or whatever it be. So in a way, ultimately um, it ends up being that uh, we continue these cycles of violence that we see as, as young kids. And so it makes me think too about our community, this LGBTQ community that's already so vulnerable to so many different types of violence, sexual violence, domestic violence, human trafficking even too, but all these other systemic violences too that affect our community, especially Black transgender women, Black trans and non-binary people in general too. Um, and looking even, too, at intergenerational trauma stemming from slavery, stemming from uh, colonization, stemming from all these different uh, forms of violence over years, and how that also affects um, mental health, but also uh, physical health over a lifetime.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's a very under-recognized um, field of study, I would I would say, I'm no psychologist, so I'm not the person to make a statement like that. But I do think that, especially within marginalized communities, it's super important to recognize all of the social and psychological um, factors that play into an individual, an individual's health and their ability to live a healthy life, quote unquote, whatever that may mean for specific people. Right. But I did kind of wanted to t- to go back. We mentioned gender reveals earlier, um, and there's been a lot of interesting scandal and a lot of different <laughs> opinions about what's been going on with these gender reveal parties. Um, if you couldn't tell, I'm very much against them. I think it's a waste of time. I think people just want an excuse to get out of quarantine. Um, but I would definitely love to know your thoughts and maybe how gender reveal parties affect the LGBTQ community and like maybe if there's like I'm not sure if there's a social or like kind of a collective understanding of how unhelpful these parties are um I I just wanted to know your thoughts Addison
1: yeah so um You know, I I think that gender reveal parties are one of the first ways that we start to instill violence um, against transgender and non-binary people, and um, even too, I think that it's uh, limiting, it's one of the first ways that we limit even cisgender people and how they can express and be themselves. So I think back to, um, you know, this woman, her name is Jenna uh, Kervanidis, I think that's how you um, uh, pronounce her last name, but she's actually the, uh, what's called the inventor of the gender reveal party. And she, this was something that she started, I think back in the early 2000s for her own child, who has now actually come out as non-binary. And, right and so and so and she's even now taken the stance of saying to that recognizing how harmful gender reveal parties are and that it was something that was even harmful to her own child as the creator of these gender reveal parties so i think that to me like you know when i hear that story i think that that is something that i kind of really try to remind people to, especially parents and cisgender people who are wanting to do this, is that you see right off, like from from the person who created these parties, that it's not helpful, it actually can be harmful, and that it, it's something that shouldn't be done. I feel that gender reveal parties um, are a bit of a waste of time, and they lack a bit of creativity, because I, I would love to see gender reveal parties for babies, where maybe we're celebrating that child's astrological sign. Or we're celebrating like maybe a um, a cultural aspect of that child and the family and the history, the legacy that will be carried on with that child. So gender reveal parties um, and the celebration of a child can be so much more than just limiting it to pink or blue or that child's uh, perceived sex at at birth. Um, But I would actually love to see instead that gender reveal parties in the future become something that when trans and non-binary people finally recognize who we are and feel safe enough to come out, that our parents, our family, our chosen family can come together and celebrate a new gender reveal where we're revealing ourselves for the first time maybe to everyone else. And so it becomes a, a moment of saying that we're here to support you as how you are and how you identify rather than what we want you to identify as.
0: I am absolutely obsessed with that idea. I think that that is so phenomenal. And I love that you (laughs) propose an alternative too, because like everyone wants a reason to have a cake and balloons and get everyone (laughs) together. And I really, really love, hopefully this can be something that can be reclaimed maybe by the LGBTQ community. Because I do think that it does do a lot more harm than good. And I think it's totally fine. to Like, you have a baby shower. I'm trying to think of, like, they have so many parties before the kid is even born. Like, I'm...
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, no, no. The baby shower happens. Sometimes people do the gender reveal party at the baby shower. Um, But, you know, I think, too, like, again, it's just, you know, I I want to encourage folks who are listening that if you ever do um, have a child at one point, too, and you do want to throw... And you're tempted to throw a gender reveal party. Um, just think, you know, just think about that. So many trans and non-binary people who um, do feel that that is a violent um, step towards boxing in someone into a gender that they um, are perceived to be or that they need to be. Um, And also think, too, about the environmental risks, too. Recently, there was, uh, you know, a couple of transgender, (laughs) or not transgender, uh, gender reveal parties that ended up causing California wildfires. So I think that, you know, it's just really important to think, too, not only about the emotional and social impacts of those types of parties, but now the environmental risks of those parties, too. It's just
0: such a fun... only like only we could create something like that like it's (laughs) it's not only affecting marginalized communities but it's also affecting the forest like it's it's just such an interesting and honestly like even thinking about it out loud I'm nowhere near having a child yet but um even just the concept of like celebrating what this thing that I've never met is going to be um it's just really funny in my mind, but that could just be a me thing. Um,
1: yeah, no, I, I hear that. I hear that. I feel like, um, you know, I think this it, it kind of goes back to, um, to me, um, we were talking about that trauma earlier too, and the impact um, that it has health wise on a person for the rest of their lives too. I, I think too about autonomy. I think too about empowerment and about trauma informed principles and When we're thinking about trauma-informed care, this is like a a lens and approach that we use when we're in our business settings, in our personal settings, and in every interaction, we want to infuse these principles. And a couple of those principles include autonomy and empowerment. So I think about with a child that we're raising to, how can we raise our children in ways that are empowering and give them a sense of choice? Not that we're forcing them to do certain things or forcing them to live by our own standards or trying to raise them in a way to achieve the dreams that we weren't able to achieve, right? Which so many parents do. I think that instead we need to empower and give choice to our children. And so if our children aren't alive, if they're not able to be informed and make decisions for themselves too, then why would we force an identity or force a way of being on them? So it's all about giving our children education, resources, and letting them decide who they are on their own time.
0: Absolutely. I think you put it in such um, just like a fluid and very articulate way of of knowing for especially like new parents or people thinking about having children because I think that Mm -hmm. this is something very crucial that you should recognize and understand even before you have a child. Um, right,
1: right. I think that it's about like doing that inner work too. I think that for a lot of folks, you know, we feel that maybe we didn't have that choice. We didn't have that ability. And I think that, you know, I'm even thinking too right now about how me and my husband, we've been together now. We've been married for over a year. We've been together for over four years. And we're in a place where we've thought about um, having a family, like starting a family, you know, having children one day. And maybe that's four or five years from now, but it's already thinking about that and taking the steps as transgender people who have been on hormones, having to stop now our hormones in order to uh, do sperm banking, in order to check our eggs, to see how things are going so that way we can prepare for creating a family one day if that's what we want. And even as trans and non-binary people, our experience, the story, the narrative that we know is, is that we're raised one way, we're raised to be assumed cis, and then we come out as transgender and or non-binary. And we have to go through this kind of experience of coming out, this experience of of having to figure out who we are, having a gender identity crisis in a way. And that's a narrative that we know, but that doesn't need to be the only narrative that we give kids. So I know so many trans and non-binary people, including ourselves, who have already started families or are planning on starting families who are wondering, how do we raise our own children? Do we raise them in a way where they're still assumed to be and assigned as cisgender and then, they, and then create a space where they're safe enough to come out as trans and non-binary? Or do we, from the get-go, raise our children in a way that is more gender-full? that has more opportunities to play around with gender identity and that we're not forcing our children into a box from the start, but kind of using all different types of language, terms, identities, and approaches and allowing our child to see where they fit into it. So it's really complicated to figure out how do we raise children in a way where we're not enforcing the storylines that we have, but giving them maybe an even more empowered an exceptional experience. It's a really complicated thing to figure out.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, it's just so it's like so amazing and and just even being able to have those critical conversations like I, I think you're going to be an incredible parent. I have no doubt. Um
1: <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that.
0: But I definitely think it's a learning curve especially for even me myself I'm thinking now like if I have kids like I want to have that approach, but then what pronouns do I use before they can tell me themselves? And that's like the first thing that kind of came to mind right now. And I'm just thinking like if, you know, because they could be biologically one way or another, but they could also be intersex and I just couldn't know Um, unless I, you know, unless there was some sort of like medical concern or whatever that may be. What would you say to that question?
1: Around, um, you know, folks who are maybe unsure of how to gender or identify their children.
0: Yeah, maybe like with pronouns. Like, let's say I I birth a biological um, girl. Mm-hmm. How would I pronoun them?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, at the at the end of the day, um, I, I I can't really. Uh, I I can't really speak too much on that aspect because I myself am not uh, a parent. (laughs) So I I would have to say I have to go through that experience first. However, I would say that, you know, one way that we can approach our children is um, saying that regardless of the flesh between their legs, the genitals that they perceive to have, that we perceive them to have, um, that maybe it's about using all different types of pronouns. Maybe using, you know, they and them, he and him, she and her, uh, playing with different things. There's, you know, pronouns like z ze and zer, There's, there's no pronouns. Maybe it's about using just that person's name over and over again. There's so many different ways that we can approach um, the language and how we um, identify and gender our children. But I think that at the end of the day have approaching it with a more nuanced approach approaching it with less of a gender neutral approach and more of a gender full approach can be able to provide opportunities and provide choices to our children in order to self-identify. So that's kind of the route that I'm going in. Um, But I also want to challenge, you know, try. I would say try not to use terms like biological girl or biological female or biological boy, um, because then this does bring it back to this idea that our genders are significantly tied to the sex that we are perceived to have or assigned to have at birth. And so many intersex youth um, end up Uh, Because they don't necessarily have uh, bodies or genitalia that fits into that neat box of being male or female biologically, Um, they end up being uh, subjected to many invasive surgeries as kids, even as babies, um, and oftentimes put on hormone supplements as teens during puberty. Um, without their consent, without their choice, and a lot of it's framed around uh, false uh, ideas of their health, around um, shame and silencing, and sometimes even two procedures can be done without parents' consent too. It's sometimes seen as like you know we're, we need to save your baby's life, and so we need to do this invasive procedure. Parents kind of agree, but they're not informed that really it's just that the baby's genitalia just doesn't look male or female. It's, it's so complicated too, but those are, those are some of the ways that children are robbed of their autonomy, of their choice at such a young age. Um, and later in life, maybe have a harder time finding the words or courage or the ability to talk about their experiences with other, oftentimes feeling so alone or isolated in their experiences. So I think that if anything, I think that I encourage parents to just uh, be more mindful of their language uh, definitely be more open to trying new things. And at the end of the day, just checking in with your children and saying, hey, what do you want me to call you? Or what would you prefer that I use for you? Or, you know, what type of language would be best? So it's it's all about, again, checking in, giving choice and, and providing opportunities.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that that's something hopefully most of us are shifting towards and relearning and unlearning. Um, But I would love to just ask if there's any resources for individuals that are interested in learning more about Trans Day of Remembrance or even just gender fluid parenting, um, if you want to plug those here
1: yeah I mean I think that there's amazing podcasts like yours and uh, there's one called uh, Gender Reveal. There's uh, so many different um, organizations on a local level that all you have to do is search you know LGBTQ or um, look for a trans or non-binary led organization in your area mm-hmm. and check them out, call them when it's safe enough to go visit them, visit them, give them some donations um, and learn more about those stories. Um, I think that if anything, to for many parents out there who are maybe struggling uh, to accept or understand or support their transgender and non-binary children, there's so many wonderful PFLAG chapters out there. PFLAG stands for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, but it's expanded to have um, support networks for transgender and non-binary people with parents, you know, parents that are trying to seek that support. So definitely check out a local PFLAG chapter near you. Um, Beyond that too, there's plenty of online resources too. So just check them out, Google things on your own time. I'm sure that uh, you'll be able to find amazing resources in order to learn more about how to be more gender full with our parenting and even with our approaches with each other and ourselves. And lastly, I think that something that I think about too is that um, at the end of the day, everyone has experienced transphobia and the binary, everyone, not even just trans and non-binary people ourselves, but everyone, including cisgender people. We've all been conditioned to see ourselves and try to express ourselves in a way uh, that is so binary and that is so restricted. So I definitely encourage you to take a look at yourselves and think about the education that, that you learned and figure out what is the truth? Who am I? And how can I express myself in a more complicated and more authentic way for myself? And so I definitely encourage everyone to be on that their own journey to heal themselves, because when we can heal ourselves, when we can better love ourselves, we can connect with each other more. We can do the work of community healing as well. Um, Now, one more thing that comes to mind is is that in order to build our own confidence and resilience, I find that I build my confidence and resilience to future trauma uh, by learning more about my own community and family history. So in your own time, too, look up the stories of Marsha P. Johnson. Look up the stories of Sylvia Rivera. Look up the stories of uh, Miss Major Griffin Gracie, those three trans women having been... uh, some of the leaders of the Stonewall Rise and Resistance back in June 1969, which uh, launched our annual Pride events. Look at their stories and learn more about them and find inspiration from the work and the lives that they led. And in your own time, too, look up the stories of local trans and non-binary heroes, of people who have even, even, been on the list for T-Dor this year in the past and all the amazing work in their stories. Find inspiration, confidence, and resilience through them.
0: I think that's such a wonderful way to kind of close up our conversation. Um, would you like to make yourself available to the followers where they can find you, whether it's social medias <laughs> or uh, the work you do, if you want to plug that in right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, my name is Addison Rose Vincent. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram as at Break the um, So you can follow me there. And if you're interested in um, having any training or consultation for your organization or business, you're welcome to visit our website, which is www.breakthebinaryllc.com. And I provide educational trainings and strategic consultation for businesses so they they can become more LGBTQ plus empowering. So contact me today and we're I'm happy to um, continue the conversation.